All right. Um, it's good to see you all. Um, thanks uh, ever so much for um, accommodating this slightly a crowded format, but it's going to be good to be together all the way through the summer for these uh, kind of single services on each side. And I guess for all of us, it's a bit of a foretaste for us as a family of uh, what life will look like a little bit more come uh, six months' time when uh, we're all together in the same spot. So, um, yeah, let's enjoy it. Um, personal thank you from me, um, Ruth and I. Um, Ruth gave birth to our fourth son on the 6th um, and he's back from the hospital now and thank you all of you just for praying for us and um, uh, yeah great um, a great illustration for us of just what a gift it is to be part of this family and so you know we would like to extend our thanks to all of you who've prayed and cooked for us and done all sorts of stuff um, now we have to figure out how to be as together as all those other families were so um whew. <laughs> That's going to be quite, a, quite the process. Um, pray with me as we start here. We've got uh, quite a, a text, a great text, um, uh, a text with some issues in it, which I'm sure many of us will be really itching to kind of get our hands on. Um, but there's a lot to get through, um, and we're going to need uh, God's Spirit with us uh, no less than always uh, this morning as we begin. So let's pray. Um, and uh, you will need a Bible in your hands as you go. So do, don't hesitate to raise a hand and grab one from these gents as they bring them around. Pray with me. Great God in heaven, uh, we uh, come to you uh, really just as children, uh, knowing that uh, when it comes to matters of uh, the heart and uh, of uh, uh, spiritual realities, uh, we are not the experts. We're not even close. We, uh, we realize that we are far from you by nature, uh, that our hearts want to worship ourselves. Uh, they want to worship the things in our lives, the things that we own, the things that we love and aim for, um, but not the God who made us. And so we need you, God, to come and teach us, whether we're just beginning this Christian life or whether we've been walking uh, in this path for many years. Uh, we need you to feed us and speak to us. And so we pray that as we open your word this morning, the place where these riches can be found. We pray that you would meet us by your Holy Spirit and cause these words to jump off the pages of the Bible uh, and into our hearts. Um, and Lord God, we pray that there they might find a good soil, a place to uh, put their roots down deep, a place to push up a fruit-bearing plant, uh, uh, a life which uh, honours you uh, and which testifies to your goodness and truth uh, to the world around us. So God, that's our goal, not to be mere hearers, but to be doers of your word, to be changed by it. And we pray that you work among each, each of us here this morning, uh, that that might be the end of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, as I said, we have quite a bit to get uh, through this morning, so let's just get straight at it. Stand with me for the reading of God's word, and a turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, I'm going to read the whole of that chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Where Paul writes this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man... I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. So do take a seat. We're gathered here today in the sight of God and in the company of friends to join two members of this congregation together in the holy gift and covenant of marriage. Uh, You might think, um, having heard that text right. Because after all the challenging texts that we've tackled together with God's help so far in this 1 Corinthians series, it feels like we finally found our way to some familiar and trouble-free territory, doesn't it? Because this passage is one of the high points of the whole New Testament. This is the love passage. This is the wedding passage, right? This is the text that I imagine Peter Cook was preaching on when he began that uh, great scene in The Princess Bride. Love, true love, is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. I could go on. Honestly, that's one of my favorite films. Um, But seriously, I don't want to be too down on that. Um, This really is a wonderful passage to have read and preached on at your wedding. Um, But I want us to see as we start this morning uh, that actually when we use it that way, we're just a little bit wide of the mark that the Apostle Paul was aiming at when he wrote these words. You see, when Paul wrote this, he wasn't thinking about marriage at all. Paul was thinking about the dysfunctional life of the church that he had planted in this city of Corinth, about which we've been learning so much over these several weeks. When we read this passage, uh, it makes us think about all the things that love is, doesn't it? And so we want to use it as a kind of a definition of love. Uh, If someone said, what is love? You'd say, ah, let me take you to 1 Corinthians 13, where the answer is. And I suppose it can serve that purpose at a stretch. Uh, But when Paul wrote it, sadly, uh, he wasn't thinking positive thoughts about love. He was thinking negative thoughts about the state of the church in Corinth. Just look at the words that he chooses here again and think about it now in the light of what we know, having read through the book this far. He starts off with, love does not envy. That word envy is exactly the same word that Paul used back in chapter 3 when he called out this church in Corinth for the whole celebrity pastor thing that they had going on. Do you remember what he said? Since there is envy and quarreling among you, are you not still worldly? 
What about love does not boast? Well, like envy, boasting is actually one of the key issues, one of the thematic problems that Paul addresses in this letter of 1 Corinthians. wonder whether you remember some of those instances. In chapter 3, he says, no more boasting about human leaders. Or in chapter 4, what makes you different from anybody else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Or in chapter 5, your boasting is not good. And on and on it goes, boasting from front to back. What about love is not proud? The word that Paul uses there in chapter 13 is the same word we had translated puffed up earlier in the book. When Paul looked at the Corinthian congregation, he saw people who were proud about the leaders that they followed, proud about their tolerance of sexually immoral behavior, proud about their supposed knowledge of God and his will. Uh, These guys were very proud. What about love does not dishonor others? The rare word that Paul uses there actually only occurs one other place in the New Testament, and it's in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7 where Paul warned the singles among his readers uh, not to dishonor one another by getting too physically involved outside marriage. Love is not self-seeking. That one takes us back to chapter 10, when Paul warned the Corinthians about the way they handled that whole issue of meat sacrificed to idols. Do you remember that? No one should seek their own good, but the good of others, he said. Because the norm in Corinth was each person exercising their own freedom and paying no attention whatsoever to the impact on anybody else. Love is not easily angered, writes Paul. And you can't help feeling that Paul himself knew exactly why they needed that warning. Remember, this isn't the first letter that Paul has written to the Corinthian church. And as far as we can tell, the first letter that he did write was received with scorn by the church there. These guys in Corinth were all about getting easily angered and Paul had been on the wrong end of it probably more than once. Love keeps no record of wrongs, writes Paul. Well, that one takes us back into chapter 6. Do you remember that whole issue of lawsuits in the church in Corinth? How members of the church were actually taking each other to the public courts, uh, bringing the gospel into disrepute. They believed that they were kings, didn't they? They thought that they were so mature. But Paul told them they'd been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged, he wrote to them. Why not rather be cheated instead of keeping a record of all the bad things that have been done to you, trying to get uh, revenge for them. And his final remark, love does not delight in evil, also takes us back into chapter 6, where Paul has to kind of call the Corinthians on the carpet. says, don't you know, he wrote to them, uh, that evildoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this passage certainly has some wonderful positive things to teach us about love, but you see that that isn't the reason why Paul put it here. Paul didn't write this to establish love as this kind of beautiful ideal to be celebrated at a wedding ceremony. Paul wrote it to show his friends in Corinth how far short of that ideal they were falling. And that was important to Paul because in Paul's mind, love was the true barometer of spiritual life. Let me say that again. In Paul's mind, love was the true barometer of spiritual life. According to the Bible, whether or not we truly love God and whether or not we truly love our neighbours is the only ultimate measure of spiritual health. And in Corinth, Paul felt the need to kind of get that measure out and hold it up against this church 
because the Corinthians were using other measures to assess who was and who wasn't spiritually healthy. If you take a look at the uh, chapters either side of the text that we just read, so at chapter 12 and chapter 14, uh, you'll see what those other measures were. In Corinth, the spiritual health of the members of the church was being assessed on the basis of each person's spiritual gifts. Now, those of you who are regulars here and who are keen students of the preaching schedule uh, will know that actually our text for this morning includes both of those chapters. So we are due to run all the way from the beginning of chapter 12 all the way to the end of chapter 14. Uh, And I think Paul would really approve. You know, sometimes the way that we divide up God's word into these tiny sections does violence to the, the thought of the author. Paul wrote this whole thing as one section all devoted to one topic. So I'm glad we get the chance to tackle it all at once. Uh, It means we won't get the chance to go through it line by line, uh, and you might want to do some of that in your own time. Uh, But we do need to make sure we've got kind of the bird's eye view of the whole uh, section before we can draw too many conclusions. So if it's okay with you, what we're going to do here is like a whistle-stop tour for the first half of this message, uh, zooming through chapters 12, 13, and 14, and then we're going to like ram on the brakes and then draw some conclusions for our life as a church. So turn with me in your Bibles to the beginning of chapter 12 now. You definitely will need to keep your thumb in this to make sense of it. First of all, it won't surprise us to learn that uh, Paul is talking about the right way to do church in these verses. I'm sure, of course, Paul would endorse the whole kind of 90-10 philosophy that we have going on here at Crossroads. Uh, You know, the idea that 90% of our lives and our efforts as believers are invested and expended in life outside these Sunday morning gatherings. Um, Paul was passionate about that 90%. He's had a bunch to say about it earlier in the letter, you know, how Christians should behave in their society and in their workplace and in their families and so on. But since the start of chapter 11, uh, Paul has been thinking more about the 10%, uh, more about how Christians should behave when they get together. And that part ends up taking up way more than 10% of the letter in the end, um, I think really because the Christians in Corinth were making such a pig's ear of it. Uh, So you'll remember back in chapter 11, we had the whole thing about respecting gender distinctions in church. Uh, Then we had the whole thing about practicing holy communion in a way which honours all the members of the body. Uh, And now it shouldn't surprise us that we get to this issue of spiritual gifts uh, and how they should be used in the church. But where does Paul start? Well, in chapter 12, verse 3, he sets the ground rules for the whole discussion. I'll just read that because it's kind of thematic for the whole. So chapter 12, verse 3 says this, Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that the lordship of Jesus is the key thing that they need to concentrate on as they think about spiritual gifts. You see, there's a way to use spiritual gifts that very clearly communicates submission to Jesus as Lord. And that way is God's way. But there's also a way to use spiritual gifts that very clearly communicates rejection of Jesus' lordship, a way that's pretty much the same thing as saying, Jesus, be cursed. And that way is not God's way. In fact, it has absolutely nothing to do with God, however spiritual we might feel or seem when we're using our gifts like that. Now, this might come as a surprise to some of us. Uh, It certainly came as a surprise to me when I first learned this. 
Uh, but it's actually one of the central lessons of our text here. So we need to make sure that we've really got hold of it. You see, we find it easy, I think, to assume that if we're exercising spiritual gifts, if we're speaking in tongues, maybe, which is just the phrase the New Testament writers use uh, to talk about the ability to uh, speak in a language that the, the person who's doing the speaking can't themselves understand. Uh, or if we prophesy, which is the phrase the New Testament writers use for the ability to speak into particular situations or needs with special God-given insight. Uh, if we do those things, we might assume that they would necessarily elevate the lordship of Jesus, right? Because they come from Jesus. Uh, and if they're from him, surely he must be honoured when we use them, however they're used. Uh, but this passage is here to tell us that that simply isn't true. God never gives us gifts that allow us to take our hands off the wheel and renounce responsibility for the impact of our actions. Because that isn't the kind of God that he is. In God's economy, every gift he gives comes with attendant responsibilities. Material gifts come with material responsibilities and spiritual gifts come with spiritual responsibilities. When God gives gifts like the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy, he gives them expecting us to be prayerful and thoughtful in the way that we use them. And so if a person comes into a church gathering and claiming some kind of anointing uh, is domineering and insensitive and blind to the damage that their confidence is doing uh, to the assurance of less gifted people, uh, they need to know that they're using the gift that God has given them in a way that curses Jesus more than it blesses him. Just as when a naturally gifted athlete uses their physical abilities to harm themselves or to harm others, and we recognize that as an abuse of their responsibilities before God, so when a spiritually gifted believer uses their spiritual abilities to harm themselves or to harm uh, other people, uh, we need to recognize that also as an abuse of their responsibilities before God. Spiritual gifts are not immune from misuse. So now pushing on into the guts of chapter 12, uh, you'll probably see just from the section headings in your Bibles uh, that Paul starts talking pretty quickly now about unity and diversity in the church. This is where we get this famous uh, and probably the fullest version of this uh, uh, famous illustration Paul uses of the body and the parts, remember? Uh, he uses that to teach the Corinthians that not every Christian has the same set of spiritual gifts. Once again, this is one of the fundamental lessons of the text. God has deliberately created his church in such a way that not everyone is given the same spiritual equipment. Now, hearing that, we might think, Woo, hold on just a minute. That's not fair. But fairness has nothing to do with it. None of us deserves any of the blessings that we have as believers. God is completely free to show his mercy to us in whatever way he chooses. It's all grace. We can't say, oh, this person's got so much better than me and I therefore should have all the things that they've got if everything that I've got and everything that they've been given is a gift. Certainly we shouldn't get overexcited about our differences. Our differences don't make any one of us better than anybody else. Uh, and the things that bind us together are much more important. Paul makes that pretty clear, doesn't he, in chapter 12, if you look at verse 13. He tells us there that every single Christian in the world has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Whether we speak in tongues or whether we don't, whether we prophesy or whether we don't, whether we've been a Christian for 15 minutes or 50 years, there's no space here for a kind of second blessing theology where people can be converted and yet lack some special filling of the Spirit which is needed to bring them assurance and power to change if only they can get hold of it. According to this text, that whole idea is total nonsense. Paul tells us plainly, we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Every Christian is filled with the spirit of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that filling is manifested in different ways at different times according to God's assessment of our needs. But the differences are so much less important uh, than the fundamental similarity. Now that isn't to say that there aren't uh, different types of spiritual giftings. And that's where Paul goes next. In chapter 12, verse 7, he tells us that God has deliberately given different people different gifts so that each person might have something to contribute to the common good. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You see, if uh, the manifestation of the Spirit of God in every person was the same, well then nobody would need anybody else, would they? If I had the same spiritual gifts as Greg... I wouldn't get any benefit from his ability to lead us into the presence of God on a Sunday morning, would I? Or any of the other wonderful things that uh, Greg brings to the life of our staff as a church. I could do it all myself. And if Greg had the same spiritual gifts as Rod, he wouldn't get any benefit from Rod's insight into the Bible text, would he? He could do all that himself. And so do you see God's heart in this? By giving us different gifts and by spreading this whole set of gifts throughout the membership of the church, God has created the infrastructure of interdependence. God has put us deliberately in a situation where we need each other. So then moving on into the chapter that we read, chapter 13, Paul's real purpose becomes apparent, doesn't it? Paul starts talking about love because he wants now to talk about the relative value of the different spiritual gifts that God gives. And he wants to coach us to be able to recognize which ones are most important and which ones are not so important. Now that might surprise us too. Because it seems logical to us, I think, that God should at least make sure that the different gifts that he gives out to different people at least all have roughly the same value so that everyone can feel like they've been equally kind of loved and looked after. But as we'll see when we come back to apply this stuff to our own situation later on, God doesn't feel bound to follow that rule at all. We have to keep reminding ourselves that in God's economy, everything we have is undeserved. Everything we have is a manifestation of mercy. And God is within his rights to show different degrees of mercy to different people. In chapter 13, verses 8 to 13, Paul tells us that the ability to love God and to love other people is the most valuable gift of all. It's a more valuable gift and a more important gift than any of the others. In chapter 13, verse 8, he tells us that unlike every other gift, love will never fail. Love is the only gift that will last into eternity. There won't be any need for tongues in the new heavens and the new earth because all the evil effects of the fall will be undone and we'll all understand each other perfectly. 
there won't be any need for prophecy in the new heavens and the new earth uh, because we'll all be at rest and everything will make sense. There won't be any need for gifts of knowledge in the new heavens or the new earth because God will be our teacher there. But love is different. Love will blaze on from this world straight into the next world. Investments made in love here will go on paying dividends in thousands and in tens of thousands of years' time. Love never fails. And that places it at the head of the list of gifts that God gives to his people. So do you see that setting our hearts on gifts like tongues and prophecy is ultimately setting our hearts on the earth and not on heaven? If we really want to get our hearts set on heaven, we need to invest our prayers and efforts in something that will endure in heaven. And Paul tells us that that thing is love. When we reach chapter 14, we find that Paul is still developing this hierarchy of gifts, for want of a better word. And he starts by telling us that prophecy is a better gift and a more desirable gift than tongues. Why? Well, not because prophecy is more enduring than tongues. Uh, Tongues and prophecy both have that kind of sell-by date on this side of eternity, don't they? Um, But prophecy is still superior to tongues because when it's done right, it has the effect of building the whole church up while tongues, unless they're interpreted, uh, only build up the person who speaks them. But there's another reason too. Uh, Paul tells us that prophecy, when it's done right, also has a beneficial effect on people outside God's family. When non-Christians see God equipping his people with powerful, truthful, relevant insights about the world that they live in, and about the situations that they face in it, well, they tend to be convinced that God is real. That's what happened when non-Christians met Jesus, wasn't it? They heard him declaring God's wisdom with this incredible prophetic clarity, and they said, wow, who is this guy? Nobody ever spoke like this. But when non-Christians hear Christians speaking in tongues, their hearts tend to be hardened against the gospel. Paul's pretty blunt about that in verse 14, uh, sorry, in chapter 14, verse 23, isn't he? Where he tells us that if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Paul quotes a passage from Isaiah that echoes Isaiah's commissioning here, uh, where Isaiah is uh, told to speak to people that they may never be hearing and never understanding. Uh, so that their hearts may be calloused, so that their ears may be made dull and their eyes closed. That's what tongues without interpretation does to unbelievers who encounter it. So do you see now a bit more clearly where our marriage text fits in its context? Paul isn't trying to create some nice one-liners for the greetings card industry here. Uh, Paul is trying to reset the priorities of a church that's got itself way too excited about tongues and prophecy and not half as excited as it should be about love. He's not trying to be a killjoy. He doesn't think that tongues and prophecy are bad. But he does think that tongues and prophecy are way less good than love. And the lack of love that he sees in Corinth is making him wonder whether there's actually any spiritual substance at all Uh, behind the gifts that they do have. Paul sees quite a bit of Jesus be cursed in the way the Corinthians are behaving and not much Jesus is Lord. And Jesus be cursed is totally incompatible with real Christianity. So that's our flyover of the situation uh, here in Corinth and Paul's response. But I wonder how all of this applies to us today. 
because I guess all of us will have uh, heard many different approaches to this uh, on our journey uh, through Christian circles. The first thing I think we have to say is that this does apply. Uh, You see, there are some people who will want to make a case from this text uh, that this whole issue of spiritual gifts was limited in time to the life of the early church and that God doesn't work in any of these ways today. Uh, To do that, they concentrate uh, on uh, one of the pieces of the passage we just read, actually, chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, which goes like this. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. They take that word completeness and they see there a reference to the compilation of the New Testament. And they argue that God gave the early church gifts like tongues and prophecy and special gifts of knowledge to kind of bridge the gap between the life of Jesus Uh, And then uh, the later point in time when the New Testament would all be written down uh, and the church would have God's kind of definitive presentation of Jesus's life and ministry. Now, I expect you can see there are all kinds of problems with that right off the bat. Uh, But the biggie is right here in our text, um, because there just isn't any evidence here that Paul is thinking about the compilation of the New Testament at all. In fact, when you look through this letter as a whole, um, It seems far more likely that Paul, uh, when he talks about knowledge passing away and about waiting for completeness to come, it seems far more likely that he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. That was how we made sense of the whole thing about the superiority of love, wasn't it? Uh, Love will last even when the new heavens and the new earth uh, come, when the other gifts of prophecy and knowledge and tongues are no longer needed. Uh, So that's what we've got to get to grips with here. Spiritual gifts are a living, breathing reality in the church today. And they will be until Jesus returns. Uh, So we've got to know how to handle them, uh, just like the church in Corinth did. Now there is a slight rider to that. It's important that we see it. Because as we read this letter, we're kind of uh, eavesdropping, aren't we? On a conversation that involves an apostle, the Apostle Paul. And that makes this a bit of a unique situation. Although we have every reason to expect the gifts that God gave to the church in general back in the first century uh, to still be available to us today, we do still have to keep our eyes on the fact that God isn't raising up any new apostles today. He's not raising up any uh, new divinely appointed authoritative witnesses to the risen Jesus. So in chapter 14, when Paul tells the Corinthians to pay attention to his teaching because what he is writing to them is the Lord's command, we can't expect that type of gifting and authority to be replicated today. When people prophesy today, they can't claim that what they're saying is the Lord's command like the apostles could. All prophecy in our era needs to be held up to the scrutiny of the church and the Bible, as Paul himself says here in chapter 14, verse 29. And if you hear anybody kind of trying to play that authority card, uh, you should know that this text kind of rules that out of bounds. When Paul includes apostleship in his list of gifts in chapter 12 as well, that doesn't mean that we can expect that gift to be part of the gift mix we have in the church today either. Paul is writing to a church that had actually experienced apostleship firsthand. Paul had lived with these guys for 18 months. Uh, They had experience of the unique set of abilities that went with that particular gifting. 
And if the record of Paul's ministry that we have elsewhere in Acts is anything to go by, the Corinthians would have seen him performing miraculous healings, uh, demonstrating authoritative insight into the lives and hearts of other people on a regular basis. But that isn't our situation today. Paul was trying to make sense of apostolic gifts, not just regular New Testament gifts in this text. And so we've got to bear that in mind when we're drawing applications out of it for our own church life. The next big lesson that we've got to get to grips with here is I think this passage partly exists to just blow up any expectation we have that real Christians will all experience God in the same way. I think this is actually far more common than we might think. I notice simply as a fact of life in our congregation that some of us raise our hands in worship and some of us don't. I notice that some of us feel comfortable to pray out loud in the big group, uh, to lay a hand on someone, uh, and others of us don't feel comfortable with that at all. Now tell me, how does that difference make you feel? I don't mind admitting that for me, for many years as a young Christian, the fact that other people seem to have a much more tangible, demonstrable experience of the presence of God in their lives than I did, totally paralyzed my Christian life. Because something inside me told me that I needed to be like the other people I was worshipping with. And because I knew I wasn't, I became convinced that I wasn't really a Christian. And so I prayed to receive Christ over and over and over again. And I started wondering what sort of God God really was, that he would bless some people so richly and me so poorly, totally missing the point that I was already saved and already filled with the Spirit, totally missing the point that that salvation dwarfed any subsequent manifestation of the Spirit that I could ever experience on top of it. Some of us have amazing testimonies to tell, don't we, about God's miraculous intervention in our lives. Uh, Maybe some of us can recall moments where we've been conscious of God's very explicit guidance, uh, where we've been conscious of God's help with some kind of uh, particular sin, or we've been delivered from some kind of slavery or some kind of false perspective on life. But others of us don't have that. In fact, for some of us, our Christian life is a long battle uh, to press on putting confidence in the truth of what God has said, even when God seems completely silent. I want us to understand this morning that these are all paths on which God has led his people down the years, and that none of them is necessarily any more real than any other. You don't have to be able to stand up here at the front and say, God sent me to Guatemala in order to be a real Christian. And if, you don't, if you're not conscious of that, don't fake it. It's got nothing to do with whether you're a real Christian or not. If we're trusting Christ in practice, if we're putting our confidence in his promises and putting sin to death in our lives by dependence on his power, whether we feel it or not, whether we can put our hands in the air or not, we have faith. If we're trusting Christ in practice, if we're putting our confidence in his promises and putting sin to death in our lives by dependence on his power, whether we prophesy or not, whether we pray in tongues or not, we have faith. God is absolutely not interested in populating his church with people who are all the same. He has deliberately created his church with a diversity of spiritual experience because he knows what each of us needs. Uh, He knows that um, 
it's good for us to have something to contribute to the common good, even if it's just empathy with somebody else who's feeling far from God. Everything we have from God is mercy. We don't deserve to have a sparkling and emotionally satisfying walk with Jesus every day. And when we don't, we often learn far more. So let's embrace the fact that each of us is experiencing God slightly differently and not put pressure on each other to be the same. In our body, we have some people who are slightly more charismatic um, in their approach and some people who are more reserved. That's great. From this text, can I venture to uh, ask those of us who are more charismatic, maybe, uh, not to take it on ourselves to try to make the more reserved people more like us? And equally, can I venture to ask those of us who are more reserved not to take it on ourselves to try to make the charismatic people more like us? God has given each of us a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So let's be thinking about how we can complement the differences we see around us and not about how we can erase them by trying to make everybody else just like us. Now, the next thing that this text has for us, I think, flows on naturally from this observation that real Christians can experience God in different ways. Uh, Because this diversity needs sensitive handling, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul highlights two opposite ways it can go. Uh, He uses the human body as an analogy, and he tells us first that some people react to the diversity of uh, Uh, gifts that God has given to his church uh, with a sense of inferiority. So in chapter 12, verse 15, Paul imagines the foot saying, oh, because I'm not not a hand, uh, I don't belong to the body, I've got nothing to contribute. And later on, he imagines the ear saying, oh, so wish I was an eye. But because I'm not an eye, I just don't belong to the body. But it can also go the opposite direction, can't it? We can react to the diversity of gifts that God gives his church with a sense of superiority. And so in chapter 12, verse 21, Paul imagines the I saying to the head, I don't need you, (laughs) I'm an I. And later on, he imagines the head saying to the feet, I don't need you. If only you had the gifts that I have, but you don't. So you're just an also-ran, I'm the uh, the centre of attention here. I wonder whether you can relate to either of those reactions. It's easy to feel like that, isn't it? I already told you how I struggled as a younger Christian because I felt spiritually inferior to all the people around me who seemed to have this greater sense of God's presence in their lives than I did. But it's also ever so easy to go the other way and to start looking down on people who lack the gifts that we have and wishing that they were just a little bit more like us and then everything would be all right. Well, the striking fact is that in Paul's response, uh, he gives exactly the same advice to both groups. Paul introduces the problem and then he reminds both groups of people, those who feel inferior and those who feel superior, that God doesn't see the world the way either of them see it. I understand where you're coming from, you folks who feel inferior, says Paul, but God has placed all the parts of the body just as he wanted them to be. I understand where you're coming from, you folks who feel superior, says Paul, but God has put the body together giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so there should be no division in the body. God calls us then, as a church, to think less about the horizontal, how we compare to each other, and more about the vertical, how what we've been given has been given to us from God, and how each of us has been placed where we've been placed by God. 
God wants us to see it this way because both the inferiority route and the superiority route are dead ends in the end. They're both built on a completely false assumption that God wants everybody to be the same. And he doesn't. we just got to get over that. If the feet and the hands and the eyes and the head were all one part, says Paul, where would the body be? If we allow these ideas of inferiority and superiority formed on the basis of our different gifts and experiences to take root in us, all we're doing is showing God and the world that we don't believe in God's vision of the church at all. And so we deny the very source of whatever gifts it is we claim to have. Next, I think this passage creates a clear mandate for the use of spiritual gifts in our church. And it also provides some clear guidelines, I think, for how to do it. First, it encourages us to agree together that what will last for eternity is more important. Can we all agree on that? Amen. That loving each other is more important. And it's a more decisive manifestation of the Spirit than preaching gifts or prophetic gifts or speaking in tongues or any other thing that you might point to in your Christian life. If you're this type of Christian who has a very kind of, uh, you feel kind of spiritually in ER the whole time and that you don't feel like you actually uh, have this kind of dynamic relationship with the Spirit of God and it's hard for you to feel God's presence close. And yet when you look at your life, if you see transformation and you are loving other people and you love God and his word with a passion, that's a more decisive demonstration of God's spirit in your life than any gift of tongues or prophecy uh, or a wonderful testimony you could bring back from the One Thing Conference that you could ever have. So please just relax about that and let's value that together as a church. Second, it urges us, this text, to value the edification of the body as a whole over the edification of any one member of the body. Can we agree to that too? That as a church, we will place the good of the church above what feels most comfortable to any one of us personally. Third, it urges us to think through things from the perspective of non-Christians who uh, often enter our fellowship. All spiritual gifts come with attendant spiritual responsibilities. And those responsibilities always include maximizing the appeal of the gospel to those who don't yet know Jesus. Thinking specifically about prophecy in tongues for a minute, uh, Paul does envisage a place for prophecy when the church is gathered on Sundays and in our house churches and in our midweek groups. We need to be open to the reality that God can and will give members of our body specific biblical insight into our current needs uh, and into uh, Bible passages that we're studying together. Uh, And these insights need to be heard and weighed carefully. Uh, The church that Ruth and I used to belong to in London would regularly carve out a slot at the end of a Sunday morning sermon for questions and specifically for prophetic insight from the body. Our own church here regularly makes space for individuals to pray out prophetic uh, wisdom for the benefit of the body as a whole. But these opportunities also have to be handled with care, don't they? The gift of prophecy is not the gift of apostleship. We can share what God is putting on our hearts, but it always has to be subject to the wisdom of the body under the rule of the Bible. If a person who prophesies is not willing to be subject to the discernment of others, their behavior says, Jesus be cursed, much more than it says, Jesus is Lord. And that applies to those of us who preach, 
just as much as anybody else. Prophecy is not a convenient trump card for persuading other people that we're right. If any of us believes that we've heard something from the Lord, and yet it's not supported by the church or by the Bible, we have to be willing to admit that we're mistaken. Indeed, learning to admit that we're wrong from time to time may be the whole purpose of the experience in God's hands. On tongues, I think Paul explicitly forbids the use of tongues in public worship unless the words that are spoken are interpreted. Uninterpreted tongues are for our our own encouragement and in private only. In public, Paul tells us that uninterpreted tongues fail to serve the common good and they can actively damage the credibility of the gospel for newcomers. On the question of interpretation, Paul has some interesting advice, I think. Uh, And I would encourage anyone here who does speak and pray in tongues, I imagine there are many of us who do. Um, uh, Paul has some advice here that I would encourage each of us to give uh, some thoughtful uh, consideration to. In chapter 14, verse 13, do you see Paul urges people who speak in tongues to pray that they may interpret what they say? Now, in the past, I've always read that as just advice to pray that God will give an additional gift, the gift of uh, the ability to interpret tongues. But as I've been studying for this message, I wonder whether I actually have that wrong. And maybe Paul might be providing some practical guidance here, an actual technique for interpreting tongues. I wonder whether Paul, who tells us that he spoke in tongues more than anyone in Corinth, uh, was advising people with the same gift uh, to try praying consciously at the same time as uh, they were speaking in tongues unconsciously, if you can kind of imagine that situation. I wonder whether he found in his own experience uh, that uh, his conscious prayers somehow fell into line uh, with what his spirit was praying unconsciously when he did that, allowing him to interpret it. Take that anyway as a prophetic insight from me and weigh that against the scripture and do I feel absolutely free to let me know if I have that wrong. The bottom line here though is that uh, our text ends where it started. Paul wants us to see that there is no free ride to correct practice with spiritual gifts. Just because they're spiritual doesn't make every use of them right. Just because they're spiritual gives us no more of a right to take our hands off the wheel uh, than we would have with a material gift like driving a real car. You know, no one would take their hands off the wheel and hope to keep their license all their life. We have to be very careful how we use the spiritual gifts that God has given us. We have to work hard to stay very teachable about it uh, so that we're willing to hear and act on both encouragement and rebuke if they should come. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why love trumps them all. Because it's hard to imagine a fellowship where what Paul is teaching here could actually be practiced if it wasn't a fellowship already marked by an unusual amount of mutual love and trust. You see, I think I can live with you telling me that I preached a bad sermon if I'm patient and you're kind. I think Greg can uh, handle me providing feedback on his choice of songs if I'm not secretly envious or boastful and he's not proud. I think the brother in our congregation who speaks in tongues can be content using his gift in private when there's no interpreter if he's determined determined not to dishonor others or to be self-seeking. I think the sister in our congregation who prophesies can handle being corrected from God's word if she's not easily angered and the person into whose life she spoke keeps no record of wrongs. I think our church can pray for the healing of the sick people among us Uh, and be content to let God answer yes or no 
if we rejoice with the truth. In fact, I think we can lay down every gift we have and every gift we desire at each other's feet if we truly know that it's okay for all of us to be different and that we're protected and trusted and hoped for and that the people around us are going to persevere with us and not give up on us despite those differences. Because love never fails. And the only and only the spiritual gift of love creates a, the context that's needed uh, for a healthy, spiritually healthy church. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we call out to you for your help in handling uh, these challenging issues of spiritual gifts. And thank you for the clarity that your word brings to us uh, in these chapters. And yet we do pray so much that you would please work in us. Uh, Most of all, this spiritual gift of love Uh, that we might be able to handle these things well, that we might be true to the gifting that you've placed inside us. Lord, for those of us who are gifted with prophetic gifts and the gift of tongues, um, uh, the ability to uh, bring um, insight to bear on your words, uh, the ability to pray with and encourage others. Lord, whatever the ways that you've equipped us, we pray that we might make them subject um, to uh, the good of the body, Uh, as an offering of worship to you. And we pray, God, that uh, the whole firepower of your Spirit's gifting to us as a body, uh, that all of it might be applied uh, productively for your glory. Lord, that uh, your Lordship might be seen uh, and that we might not be um, cursing Jesus by the way that we behave, but honouring him, uh, that we ourselves might be built up and that others might be drawn to him. And we ask it for his glory and in his name. Amen.